Well, good morning. Let me try that again. Good morning. One more time. Good morning. No, I didn't need your response. I've never heard my voice like this before. You see, I'm used to speaking in a synagogue, but I've never spoken with a microphone before. And to hear my voice amplified like this, I in, that is something else. Good morning. You see, maybe I should have introduced myself. My name is Micah. Uh, I'm not from here. In fact, I'm not even from this century, or millennium for that matter. Aaron invited me to come and speak to you this morning about a particular day, a day that I witnessed, a day that I want to tell you about. In fact, you just heard about that day read. And uh, now your Bibles are easier to read from than my scrolls, so let me see if I can find that verse in John chapter 12, verse 12. Well, this wasn't written yet when I was there, but now uh, I'm able to read it. So here's what that day was that I want to tell you about. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. You see, I, I, I was there for that day. I remember that day. It was a Sunday. It was the first day of our week. Now, some of, our, some of your historians had said, have said that it was March 29th, A.D. 33. I won't tell you if that was the correct date or not. I'll let your historians keep guessing. You see, it was a very particularly important Sunday. It was the Sunday, the first day of the week, before Jesus of Nazareth was killed in the town I lived in. I'm from Jerusalem. I remember that week well, that time in my life. I'm now an old man. I was a young man then. I, in fact, I was in my second year of marriage. It was an exciting time. I had just found out that my wife was pregnant with child. I was learning my father's craft, and he told me that if I continued in the trade, I was about to take over his business. So it was an exciting time in my life. The whole world laid in front of me. I lived in Jerusalem, I told you that. I'm, I'm an Israelite. I'm, I'm from the Jewish nation. And so Passover was a particularly important time in our lives. You see, this was not just a Sunday, the first day of the week. This was a Sunday, the first day of the week that we celebrated Passover. And so it was a special time for our family. Ordinarily on a Sunday, I would be going to work. It, it was not the religious holy day like Sunday is for you. That took place on our Sabbath. So this was the first day of the week. And I would have been going to work, but we, we took the whole week off and we didn't work and we celebrated together. You see, Passover was a special time for us as Israelites and as Jews because we remembered the fact of the Exodus. We remembered the first Passover. You see, something like uh, 12, 13, 1500 years, many, many, many years before this Passover, there was the first Passover. My great, 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 great grandparents, I'm a child of Abraham, uh, I, I, uh, my great, great grandparents and all of their family was led out of slavery. They were led out of Egypt under some miraculous circumstances. God worked a miracle on our behalf. The God had to convince Pharaoh and the Egyptians to let my people go, to let his people go, my ancestors. And he did that through a series of plagues. And the final plague was the one of the Passover lamb. And God told our people that he would save us, that he would deliver us if we took the blood of a lamb and if we killed it. 
and we took that blood. It had to be a pure lamb. And we took the blood and we put it on the doorposts of our house. And that night, the angel of death passed over the camp and passed over all of Egypt. And every household who had the blood of the lamb, the, the angel of death passed over and the firstborn child was not slain. God delivered us. That was what caused the Pharaoh to let us go. That was what caused the Pharaoh to allow us to leave and God uh, uh, used those events to help work his people. We knew that we were God's chosen people, but we didn't yet have a land. We didn't yet have a, a freedom that was all of our own with our own nation and with our own land. We were in bondage in Egypt and my grandparents have told me the story and passed it down through the generations and we remember that God delivered us the first time. And annually, we're supposed to come together and commemorate and remember the deliverance that God gave. And we're supposed to continue remembering that someday he will again deliver us. So speaking of the land that God gave my grandparents, that's now where I live, Jerusalem. You see, this is a very important city for me and my people as God's chosen people because if you've read any of your history books, you'll see how this went for my ancestors and their families. You see, God did eventually give my people a land. He gave them a kingdom. He gave them a nation, but it didn't last very long. We were conquered. We were carried off into captivity. And yet God still loved us. He still told us we were his chosen people. God continued to send messengers to my ancestors and they were written in our scrolls in the Old Testament and God gave messages and warnings and he said, you are my people, you need to come back to me, you need to repent, you need to live according to the way I have taught you. And my ancestors were rebellious, hard-hearted people. But my God is a patient God. He is long-suffering. He continued to love and pursue his people. And he told us that someday he was going to deliver us, that there would be another rescue, that there would be a Messiah who would come. Me and my ancestors in every generation had been waiting for someone to come and to deliver us. You see, by now, some of us had returned to Jerusalem. And some of us were occupying the land that we knew was rightfully ours, but we didn't yet have a king. We weren't the nation that we used to be. You see, we were ruled by Rome. And the Romans, they had a way of making life difficult. We couldn't wait to one day be a kingdom again, to to one day be a nation with a king. We were waiting for it because God sent promises and messengers that said a king would come, that there would be someone who would come as a deliverer, there would be someone who would come and bring salvation. And so you can imagine what that would be like for me and my friends. We frequently thought about who would this Messiah be? You see, it had been many years since we had gotten a message from God. There were several hundred years of silence between the last book in our Old Testament scrolls and we were waiting, when was God going to give us another message? When would we hear from God? Who would this deliverer be? When would we get the king? When could we overthrow Rome? And there would be people who would come and claim to be the Messiah. Sometimes people would get excited about them. Eventually they'd get overthrown. Some of them would be killed. Rome was very good at killing anyone that was a threat to them. But on this particular day, there had been rumors of a different sort. 
We had heard about this man named Jesus of Nazareth. He had been reported to do things that were miraculous, that were miracles. He had been, he had been reported to, to give the blind sight, to heal the sick, to take food and multiply it to the masses. And people knew about him. And in fact, many of the Jews thought maybe this is the Messiah, maybe this is the King, maybe this is the Christ. And, and we even heard that in a little town away, just, just less than two miles from where I live in Jerusalem, in this little town of Bethany, that he made a dead man rise again. A man named Lazarus, who'd been in the tomb for four days. And when we started hearing about this, we thought, well, maybe this is different than some of the others that have come before and claimed to be a Messiah. And so there were many people in my family who were excited. When, when would we see Jesus? Would he ever come to Jerusalem? And yet, you have to understand, not everyone was excited. Not even everyone who was a Jew was excited. You see, I had a friend... And my friend had an uncle who was a priest. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was like the highest court for us as Jews. And they were very much not excited about Jesus. That is an understatement. They plotted to kill Jesus. In fact, it had been reported that Jesus was staying in the outskirts. He had to hide in little towns and hide in the wilderness. He had to stay far away from Jerusalem, the most important capital city, because some of these in, in uh, the political spectrum, the members of the Sanhedrin and some Jews were not excited about the, the, the prospect that Jesus brought. You need to realize that not everybody thought an overthrow of Rome would be a good thing. We were very divided politically. Uh, we had groups like the Sadducees who, who were very anti... Uh, they, 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 yes, believed in Jerusalem and wanted us to be a nation, but they were favorable to the Romans. They knew that their political position and power was given to them by Rome. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they didn't like each other very much anyways, but it was one of those scenarios where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so the, fa the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they worked together and, well, they were kind of willing to cooperate with Rome. And so they saw Jesus as a threat. Anyone who claimed to be the Messiah and might overthrow Rome would be a threat. But me and some of my family and friends, well, we, we were happy to see Rome go. To see someone who claimed to be the Messiah and might be the king and the promised deliverer, well, that would be a great joy. But not everybody thought so. We, we were very politically divided. Far more politically divided than I hear some place called the United States in 2,000 years will be between Democrats and Republicans. There was no peace. There was no plan for peace. There was, if you asked these different groups to come up with someone who could be our king and who could lead us into peace and prosperity, we did not agree on how that would look. But I knew one thing for me and my family. We thought Jesus and these reports that we had heard, perhaps he would be the one. Perhaps he would be the Messiah. 
Perhaps he would be the one that could make these promises come true. And so we got word on that Sunday morning, the, the Sunday of Passover weeks. You see, you need to understand that during Passover, Jerusalem would swell in its size. And, and what was usually our town, there would be two, three, four, perhaps more times as many citizens coming to the city for this feast because it was a religious festival that they wanted to be there and go through the rites of purification and and there was all kinds of excitement in the air. There were many people who would have been there on that day. And on that morning, word came to us that Jesus was just outside, two miles away in this town called Bethany. He was making his way to Jerusalem. In fact, he was going to enter into the city. We knew this was dangerous. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had said, if anyone knows where he is and if he comes into the town, you let us know. We want to arrest him. But there were many of us who were excited, so we went out to meet him. And we gathered there on the road, and we saw him coming towards us. But it was not what we expected. Okay, I'm back. It's Aaron. 2000 and whatever year this is, 19. If you can put yourself in those shoes, you understand the context of what is taking place on that morning when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And there's, there's political excitement, there's religious excitement on one of the most important festivals of the year. And here comes Jesus into town. And the crowd is swelling. And so I want to come back to the text in John chapter 12 in verse 12. And he says this, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is one of the few stories that is recounted in all four of our Gospels. And so it's interesting just to note what even some of the differences and similarities were between the way that it's reported. And John doesn't give us a lot of description of why the disciples went and got the donkey. Some of the other Gospels will tell you what, uh, the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples to go and get the donkey. But when Jesus rides in, you can catch some of the excitement, right? The crowd goes out to meet him. They go and cut down palm branches, which palm branches didn't have any necessarily religious significance tied to the Passover. They would have been important for the Jews in the Feast of Tabernacles. It would have been something of a symbol of national pride. It would have been um, uh, perhaps akin to waving a flag or something like that, but they, they went out and got the palm branches and they laid them down and they, they realized something very important was happening because Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Now, how many of them knew and understood and to the extent that they understood, we could have a discussion about that, about how fully they grasped the significance of the situation, but it, John even tells us that it was after the fact that they tied together some of the significance of what would have happened. But you need to understand what it would have been like to see Jesus riding into the city on a donkey. Now that would have elicited a few different responses, probably a mixed response and probably even some confusion. Because there were many, we've already covered, the excitement was such, the rumors had been spread, there was this excitement, maybe he's the king, and so they're ready to crown him king. In fact, uh, in, in verse 
13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so he goes back to this um, uh, quote uh, in the Psalms, and he quotes that and then adds even the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, adds this phrase, even the king of Israel. And so the people are reciting the Psalms and they're adding to it, not only blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but even the king of Israel, Jesus, right here. They're pronouncing a blessing on him and realizing this is the messianic king. Now it would have been significant that Jesus rode in on a donkey. That's a pretty lowly, humble animal. In fact, what's happening here is a copying of the way that Solomon was introduced as king. And it's likely that no king of Israel had ever rode in on a donkey since Solomon. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 1 when, when David uh, had Solomon presented to the people as king, his son, and, and wanted Solomon to ride in on his donkey. Now, if you remember some of the history of the nation of Israel, so think about it. A donkey is a pretty lowly animal. It speaks somewhat of Jesus' entrance as a humble servant king. But remember what God's instructions were for his, his chosen nation of Israel. God gave instructions to Solomon, and he saw, there were several things he said, but one of them related specifically to horses. And he said, Solomon, there's a few things that I need you to understand. And he said, I don't want you to go to Egypt and get horses. If you do, you're going to put your strength in horses. There were other things with this. Don't count the people. Don't put your trust in money. And, and you go through it and you realize, what did Solomon do? Uh, he, he had censuses and acquired for, you know, wanted to know the population. He acquired for himself large amounts of wealth. And he went to Egypt and he got horses and he brought them back. Great, great numbers of horses, right? And so probably every king since... What, what they ride, they rode a war horse, right? To be like the nations around them, the, the powerful conquering king. And so there would have been this mixed response of, well, here comes Jesus, there is excitement, here he comes in, perhaps he's the Messiah, perhaps he's the one, he's ready to crush Rome on a donkey. That's interesting. But it doesn't sway the excitement in the sense that they're still there. It, the crowds are proclaiming him as king. It speaks something to the fact uh, of, of his, uh, his kingdom was going to be different than the kingdoms they had seen of the world. But it was also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And if you go to the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, you will see it prophesied that Jesus would come mounted on a donkey, on, on, on the foal of a donkey, on a young donkey. And so you recognize and realize that, the, that God, in his sovereign wisdom, gave these messages to his people and wanted them to catch and see Jesus really is who we say he is. He fulfilled prophecy. There were many predictions of who he was. And so if you look at John's commentary in verse 16, it says this, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. There were some that understood some of the significance of what was taking place, but many did not catch the fact that Jesus riding in on a donkey was 
fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in its fullest sense. There were many who expected the Messiah to show up on a war horse. There were many who expected the Messiah to show up and overthrow the Romans. But the disciples didn't fully understand these things. There were many aspects that were lost to them. Now, I want to step away for just a second from everything I'm saying in terms of the the political expectations of the nation. Let me make a word of application as it comes to fulfilled prophecy. And as it, I hope that it encourages those of us uh, who are believers in the truth and reliability of the scriptures to think about the fact that, that this was predicted hundreds of years before that Jesus would enter the city on a donkey. And you think about that kind of a thing and you realize how many prophecies like that were fulfilled. It ought to encourage us in the truth of scriptures. And perhaps you're here this morning and skeptical of is this really true? Is the story of who Jesus Christ is? And I am glad that you have those questions and you should ask them and you should search through them and one of the things you're going to have to wrestle with is is Jesus who he said he is and you're going to have to wrestle with the fact that hundreds of years before Jesus entered on the scene there were many predictions made about his life that came true and how did that happen you can believe that somebody made it all up But there's historical, credible evidence as to why that's not the case. And you've got to wrestle with how how did something like this be known hundreds of years ahead of time unless it was historically incredibly true. There's a book called Taking a Stand for the Bible by John Ankerberg and Dylan Burroughs. And I want to read what they say. For example, because remember, it's not Jesus riding in on a donkey. That's not the only prophecy. You've got many, many prophecies. Things like he would be born of a virgin. He would live in Nazareth of Galilee. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would have his hands and feet pierced. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would have lots cast for his garments. You could go through dozens and dozens and dozens. There are many, many prophecies that were in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament hundreds of years ahead of time. For example, imagine how difficult it would be for someone today to predict 700 years in advance the exact city in which a future U.S. president would be born. This means predicting the birthplace of someone who is president around 2700 A.D., the year 2700. Could you predict the city that that U.S. president would be born in. That's what the prophet Micah did when he prophesied the birthplace of Jesus, the Messiah, 700 years before he was born in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. How difficult do you think it would be to predict the kind of death a religious leader would experience a thousand years from today? Could you predict today a specific method of execution not currently known One that won't be invented for several hundred more years. That's what David did in 1000 BC when he wrote about the crucifixion in Psalm 22. Think about some of these things and just even the probability that that someone would fulfill these prophecies. And you've got to understand the divine intervention that was taking place here. So there's a, a man named Peter Stoner who was a a professor, and he, with his students, wanted to come up with what are some of the mathematical calculations, mathematical probabilities of fulfilling some of these prophecies. So, for instance, take the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And he had the students, what what is the probability of someone being born in Bethlehem? And he took this out, that any one person would be born in Bethlehem in the world today. And he had them work, they, they worked through it from a scientific probability standpoint, just thinking, what are the numbers? Let's make them conservative. Let's think about all the probabilities involved and come up with a conservative guess. 
then he took their numbers and he made them even more conservative. He backed them off he, he, so that the most skeptical of students would be uh, convinced that yes, from a mathematical standpoint, I can acknowledge that's the probability of any one person fulfilling that. And so then he submitted those numbers to a committee called the American Scientific Affiliation. Uh, and, and he had them evaluate the numbers and they said from from the standpoint of are these is this data reliable and scientifically authentic they said yes these are conservative estimates and it's something that would be reasonable for science so something like the Messiah being born in Bethlehem was something like one in 300,000 so he took eight prophecies and you know if you know how probability and statistics works that uh, you start multiplying those probabilities against one another you you begin to get a very 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 very, very large number very quickly. It just goes exponentially. So they took eight of those prophecies, again with the very conservative numbers, and they said, what is the probability that any one person would fulfill eight of these things? Remember, there'd be dozens of prophecies that you could fulfill. And they came up with a number one times 10 to the 17th power. So one in 10 with a 17 zeros behind it. I don't know how to say that number. It's large. If you need to understand what the probability of this is, uh, 10 to the 17th power, if you were to take silver dollars, and if you were to cover the entire state of Texas to the height of two feet deep, that's, one, that's 10 to the 17th power in silver dollars. That's how many silver dollars there are. If, if you're curious, New Jersey fits into Texas 31 times. So uh, depending on your geographical reference, you can either cover New Jersey 62 feet deep in silver dollars, or go to Texas and it's only two feet deep and you can still walk through it. Take one of those silver dollars, right? Mark it so that you know you could find it. Mark it red. Drop it in there somewhere from an airplane, mix the whole thing up, take somebody blindfolded and have them just start walking through the state of Texas till they're ready to stop reach down and the first silver dollar they pick up is the marked one. That, that's one in 10 to the 17th power in terms of just fulfilling eight of those prophecies. And so you look at things like this and you realize how is it that hundreds of years ahead of time these prophecies could come true in the person of Jesus Christ, that he would ride into town on a donkey. How would that happen? And you realize the divine, supernatural things that is going on that God was able to predict through the prophets years ahead of of time and it gives us confidence that Jesus really is who he said he was and this is why John was working to help people see this is Jesus right and it's why it helps us understand that if that that our hope and confidence in Christ's death on the cross his, his payment for our sins gives us hope gives us assurance it gives us a rock-solid confidence it gives us Tr uh, uh, confidence in the truthfulness of scriptures. It gives us confidence in Christ's second coming, that if he came the first time, he will come again as predicted, and it encourages us in those truths. So let's come back to the text. Let's come back to the text and just realizing and understanding that, that here many people come they're excited about Jesus' entrance into the city, and yet not everybody understood the full implications. You know why? Let's keep going. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, this is verse 17, and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So you have a crowd that comes with him from Bethany and a second crowd that goes out to meet him because they had heard about all of these things. And look at the Pharisees' response. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, look, 
You're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They were hoping by their plan of putting the word out that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he would be arrested. He would be crucified. He, at that point, they probably didn't realize exactly how it would end, but they knew they needed to arrest him. They wanted to put him to death. And yet, this, getting this word out did nothing to dismay the crowds. Look, is this accomplishing anything? They say the whole world is going after him and I don't think they understood everything they were saying. We'll talk about that next week. But you realize and you, in some ways you think about this. Here comes Jesus on the first day of Passover week, the first day of the last week of his life. Jesus knew by riding into Jerusalem that morning, by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he knew the chain of events this would set in motion. And we can look at it and say, how did God's plan fall apart that the king was crucified at the end of the week? We could think that, but that was not God's plan. God did not send a conquering Messiah to overthrow Rome. God sent a king who would provide salvation for the forgiveness of sins, who would provide payment and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And so we understand then that Christ willingly rode into town that morning in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, not to overthrow Rome, but to provide a spiritual salvation. He gave his life for us, as he had just said a couple chapters earlier in John, under the, the, the story of the good shepherd. Jesus says this in John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus rode into town that, smor that morning to willingly lay his life down, that his body would be broken, that his blood would be shed for the sins of all who would turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, realizing that they have no ability to make their life right with God that they have no ability to restore the broken relationship with God. And if you're here this morning and you recognize and realize that your sins separate you from a righteous and holy God, but if you've come to the point that you realize that what Jesus accomplished on the cross provides a payment for your sins, and if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, then what an encouragement it is to stop and reflect that Christ would willingly lay his life down for the sheep. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lays down his life for his friends. And you see, when Jesus rode into that town 2,000 years ago, he knew that by the end of that week, he would willingly trade his life for yours and mine. And if you've never come to grips with the fact that you're a sinner and that your sins separate you from God, you, you need to, by faith, repent. To call out to God and ask for salvation. To say, God, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sins separate me from you, but I, I trust in what Christ did on the cross, his, his broken body and his shed blood for salvation. 
That's my invitation to you this morning. That's Jesus' invitation to you, is that any who would be willing to turn from their sins would find salvation and forgiveness and eternal life through the blood of Christ. Oh, may we realize the special nature of that sacrifice. And church, as we together, for the next few weeks, we will, for the next few months, we will search together the last few days of Christ's life. In just another chapter, we'll, we'll, we'll be in just the last 48 hours of Christ's life. And as we go through these weeks, do everything you can to get to know this Savior who willingly gave his life for you. Worship him. Acknowledge him as king. Change your life accordingly to match his priorities. May that be special for you. May that be special for us as a church this morning as we reflect on Christ's sacrifice around the table. May that encourage our hearts together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we as believers will partake together of what Christ has done for us. We will remember it, reflect on it through this special ordinance of communion. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we are very grateful for who you are as God. We are very grateful for the sacrifice that you've given to us, the, the sacrifice that you've provided for us through the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you in your sovereign plans worked to make this salvation possible before many knew or realized or understood what was taking place, you orchestrated the events of history such to work out your plan to send your son as the Messiah, as the king, as the one who would bring salvation. And we thank you for that. Lord, give us a, a, a solemn time of remembrance we thank you for what you've done for us on the cross and ask that it would affect our lives. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.